0: into it tonight. Welcome back to most of you for uh, our Thursday night gatherings here. Just a quick reminder, if you guys need anything at all, if you have any questions, if you want to get connected in any way, um, if you want prayer after this message, I'm right here, right afterwards. Love to pray with you guys. Love to answer any questions you might have. And if you need anything after that, um, you can certainly find any of our leaders wearing the name tags. They serve the ministry in some various capacities. So we'd love to connect with you like that as well. So, um, Let's go ahead and get our eyes on the Word of God. We've got a long passage I want to get into tonight as we wrap up chapter 1. So would you go ahead and turn to the book of Philippians with me, Philippians chapter 1. As you turn in there, let me give you just a few reminders before we get our eyes on the text ourselves. Philippians is written by the Apostle Paul. It's written by Paul, and it's written from his time in prison sometime near the end of his life. And it's written specifically to the church in Philippi. That's why it's called the Philippians, whom Paul had a strong connection with. Paul helped plant this church. And one of the things that we understand is that this was written to provide peace, it was written to provide encouragement, and this letter was written to provide support. And last week, we began the part of the letter where Paul talks about his imprisonment, and he talks about what he is going through, the things that he is experiencing as he has been imprisoned. And we spoke of how Paul looked at the life through the lens of the gospel, right? He looked at his life through the lens of the gospel, and we were encouraged to do the same. And this week, we're going to continue down that vein of looking at how Paul looks at life, but we're going to see things just a little bit differently, and we're going to hit one of the most famous lines in this entire letter. Let me show you what I mean. Let's let's go ahead and start in verse 19. I'm going to read verses 19 to 30. That's our entire text. I want to read it. I want to encourage you to either read along, or if you'd rather just hear it spoken, close your eyes and just listen to the word of God. Be read over you. Just get this context. Starting in verse 19, he says, For I know Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convince this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. Lord, I pray that you speak through your word tonight. I pray that you open up our eyes and hearts to receive it. It's a large passage. Father, so many things that we could learn tonight. I pray as we look at just this little aspect of how Paul is viewing things, Lord, that we would be encouraged to have the same faith that he has, Lord, and to let it impact our lives the way that it impacted his life. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, so like I said last week, we talked about the gospel ends, right? And the things that we should see if we're truly looking at the world through the picture of the gospel. And we got this Because of how Paul is speaking about his situation. And this week we're still looking at the Apostle Paul. But instead of seeing how he looks at the world, we're going to be seeing how the gospel has brought certain things into his life. And as we go even deeper, really what we are seeing are the things in life that his faith has given him. And that's why this message is titled, Faith Gives. Because if you have a faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior you are a Christian, if you are born again, then there are certain things that are given to you because of that faith. Certain things that your life will contain and certain things that are on display for all to see. And let's get into the first one. The first thing that we see here from the Apostle Paul is that faith gives assurance. Faith gives assurance. Now before we go any further, let's just talk about that word assurance. You don't hear it Too often, unless you're in the church context, I want to focus on the word because you're going to miss the beauty of this passage if you don't fully understand what that word means because oftentimes we like to intermingle and confuse the word confidence and the word assurance because they are similar. They're related to one another, but there is a difference and that is the source in which they have and where they come from. So assurance, I'm going to give you the definitions here, these ones aren't on the screen, but assurance is a a declaration intended to give you confidence right assurance is something given to you that creates confidence whereas confidence is the state of being certain about something so if i know the facts to something i can be confident in it but if i'm doubting the facts of somebody something and somebody gives me those facts they're giving me assurance right they're providing assurance that creates my confidence in what I know and think of it like this like confidence comes from within it's our response to knowing truths being certain of things confidence is our response to having been assured and assurance is when we are given that confidence because of something someone has said or something that has been done and what we see here in this passage is that Paul is given confidence because of his faith meaning that his faith has given him assurance. And it's what allows you to be confident. But confident in what? That's the first question. Confident in what? Let's see what Paul was confident in. If you look back with me at verse 19 there, he says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this. So what is this? Well, Paul's talking about his imprisonment. That's what I've mentioned to you at the beginning of this message. It's what we've been talking about Paul is saying that he knows that he has confidence. He's been given that confidence that his imprisonment will turn out for his deliverance. Our first question of that should be, how does that make sense? How does it make sense that someone's imprisonment would lead to their deliverance? That's like saying me going to jail will bring me freedom. Those are literally opposite things. My freedom being taken away from me is going to give me Freedom. That's what we would see right there if we understood his deliverance as being about his chains. But what we actually see is that Paul isn't talking about his deliverance from prison. Paul isn't talking about his deliverance from being in these chains. Let's continue. Let me show you at the end of verse 19 there. It says, "'Will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed.'" But with the full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body by life or death. So there we have it. He can't clearly be talking about just being released from prison because he's talking about whether I die or not. Whether this imprisonment ends or not physically, I know this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul isn't talking about his immediate release from prison in this passage. He's talking about his eternal state. He's talking about his life in the glory of Christ What Paul is saying is that he's been given confidence, that his faith has assured him that this entire situation, that him being imprisoned, will prove and contribute to the deliverance of his soul. Not because of him doing good works in prison, not because of what he's doing in prison will allow him to become saved, but rather that his doing good works in prison will further prove that he has been saved. That him doing what he's doing while imprisoned will show his deliverance, will contribute to it, will affirm it and prove it all the more. And what does Paul say is giving him this certainty? Look back at verse 19 again. He knows through the prayers and the help of the Spirit. One thing we know about Paul is that Paul doesn't think that there's power in prayer itself. Paul doesn't think the Philippians have a special kind of power of prayer and that's going to turn out for his deliverance. He doesn't believe that someone can pray him to salvation at this time in his life, but rather Paul believes that there is power in the one they're praying to. Paul believes that there is power in the God who hears those prayers, the one who answers those prayers. And Paul believes that there is power in the one who has given the Holy Spirit There is power in the one whom the the Spirit is from, and that is Jesus. Paul believes that there is power to help him through and persevere in his hardship because of the God that he's serving. See, he believes who God is and what God does. And he knows that through prayers and the Spirit, because God works in those things, that this will work for his deliverance. Paul's faith in God is assuring him that this time will be to prove his deliverance. Do you see what I'm getting at here? Paul's faith in God and who God is gave him that assurance, and we see it there in verse 20. He says, it's my expectation and it's my hope. The man's in prison, and he has expectations and hopes. Not something that we would normally see and he does not believe that he will be ashamed by whether life or death, right? He says, I will not be ashamed whether life or death. Christ will be glorified. Like, guys, if you have a sincere and true faith like the faith that Paul had, then you also are given that assurance in life. An assurance that no matter what comes your way, no matter where you find yourself, God is the God who will bring good things to completion like we saw in verse 6 there right verse 6 if you're looking at what we've covered before and I'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion it's God that does the work of bringing it to completion and we can have that assurance that God will continue to work in the things of our life Paul's writing this from prison right God is the God who will work on our behalf to bring things that contribute to the proving of our deliverance of our soul. And this isn't the first time Paul speaks of this. It's not the only time Paul speaks of this very thing. This is in the book of Romans. I think this one's on the screen if I remember right. Is Romans on the screen? Do we have that one here? All right. Well, you just have to turn to it if you want. Romans 5, 3 through 5 says this. Not only that, this is Paul, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and then he says and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit given to us Paul straight up says in verse 5 of Romans 5 that our hope in suffering will not put us to shame And then we're looking here in verse 20 in Philippians and seeing that he's literally saying that, that he will not be put to shame in his suffering because he has an assurance of who God is and how God works and that this will churn for his deliverance. If you have faith, you have that same type of assurance. And I just want to say that if you lack that assurance, you know, sometimes when we hear preaching like this, the first thing we see is like, okay, he's talking about this thing that I'm supposed to have, and I don't have it. I don't feel like I have it. I don't know if I have it. I don't know if I experience it. Or in this area of my life, I don't have it, even though I feel like it over here. Like, I want you to know that if you lack that assurance in something that you're going through, then my first and foremost piece of advice to you is to turn your eyes back to the faith you've been given. Turn your eyes back to the understanding of what it meant that God saved you. That a God who can grip you from the depths of shame and sin and awaken you to faith, that God is still working in us through the Holy Spirit. Like if you lack assurance in your life of something you're going through, turn your eyes to the faith you've been given in the first place. Find all the assurance you need in the fact that God has chosen you. He's predestined you to be with him. You'll have all the assurance you need. To the depth that we remember our faith in God is the depth in which we are given assurance. So faith brings assurance, but that's not all that we see. We also see in this passage that faith brings purpose. Faith brings purpose. And we see this right off the bat in this next little chunk of our passage with that famous line in verse 21. You guys have heard this line before. It's been quoted in song after song. It's what you see on posters all over the place. It's what people get tattooed on them when they go into um, various lines of just work in the ministry. And it says in verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And Paul goes into this long discourse and says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I can't tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that's better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So just to explain the flow of thought here, Paul, he's externally processing. If you've read the letters of Paul at all, you know this is something he does. Like he processes as he writes and then like corrects himself as he writes sometimes. Like there'll be moments he's like, I'm thankful I didn't baptize any of you. Well, actually, I baptized you and you, and I think maybe I baptized this person. But besides that, I don't think I baptized anyone, right? Like, that's how Paul explains things. Sometimes he just writes as he's processing so that we can understand him. And that's what he's doing here. He's essentially thinking out loud, and he's thinking and processing. Not an actual choice. He's not actually processing if he's going to choose to live or choose to die. That choice has been taken away from him. He's imprisoned but rather he's examining the deepest motivations of his heart and his desires in life like he's not saying what shall i do shall i continue living or shall i kill myself like that's not what he's saying he's deciphering what he desires in life what does he truly want and in some ways he does desire for his life to be over paul's old for his time paul's getting old he's at the end of his life he knows it he, he talks about it later on he's tired He's been shipwrecked way too many times. He's been imprisoned way too many times. He's been beaten down time and time again. And sometimes Paul's like, I just want to be with Jesus. I just want this life to be done. And I just want to spend glory with my Savior. He desires it, to be with Christ, because being with Christ is far better than anything the world has to offer him. But in other ways, Paul desires to live so that he can work with the Philippians. And so that the other churches that he's helped plant, he can see them come into fruition in the kingdom of God. And so he can go plant more churches. Like we learn that he plans on going to Spain at some point and planting churches there. Like for Paul, like, yeah, to die is gain because he gets to be with Christ. But to live is Christ because he gets to do Christ's work and he gets to be part of Christ's kingdom. And so he has these two desires that are just constantly going back and forth in this moment, and he's externally processing them. But I want you to notice where he lands and how he lands. Notice the decision he made and how he made that decision. It says there in verse 25 that convinced of the necessity of the work of Christ in the Philippians, he will continue on. For their progress, you see it there, verse 25, for their progress... And joy in the faith. So what does Paul do? He admits that his deepest desires are those, but he doesn't let his desires control him. He doesn't let what would make him happiest. ...be the thing that he chooses. He doesn't choose what would comfort him the most. Because at this point, the man's in prison. What would comfort him the most is to just be in glory. He doesn't choose what would comfort him the most. Instead, he chooses what would fulfill his purpose in life. His purpose directed his decisions, not his desires. I'm going to say that one again, right? His purpose is what directed his decisions, not his desires. Guys, if we, if we could learn from that, if that's what we learn about our faith tonight is that it gives us a purpose, all the more would we see the kingdom of God grow in this. If only we could learn to let our desires not be the thing that drives our purpose, but rather let our purpose be what drives our decisions. If only... We can let our desire be to fulfill our purpose. But that's a hard thing to do, right? Easier said than done. Sometimes it's hard to delineate what our desires are and what our purpose is. But you know what? Thank God that he actually gave us the clear, direct purpose of our lives. He gave us that purpose and he gave it to us through the faith that we have. Our faith, our, our belief in the Son of God who died for us, paid the price, was the propitiation for our sins. Like our belief in that, our faith in Jesus as the Son of God, actually instills in us a purpose for our entire life. And Paul said what that purpose is. You see it there again in verse 25. I've already accented it. Paul states the purpose would be their progress of joy in the faith and their glorifying of Christ. You know What? Our purpose is exactly the same. Like if we have the same faith that Paul had, we have the same purpose that Paul has. To cause others to, procre- to progress in their joy in faith and to glorify Christ. That's the purpose our faith gives us. And this isn't the only place we see that. We say it time and time again. I bring it up at least once a semester. This passage. This passage is The purpose that Christ gave us, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he tells them, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I'm with you always till the end of the age. Jesus says, go make disciples, work for their progress of joy in the faith and the glory of my name. That's exactly the same purpose that we would be fulfilling if we go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. So our application from this. You know I want to give you application. You know I want you to walk away thinking this is my immediate thing. I'm going to take a side note here. I'm I'm in grad school right now, and I'm going through a hermeneutics class, and I just read... This new way of thinking through applications. This is not in my message at all. This is a freebie. Um, But I love how it words it. You guys hear me talk about application all the time. And I want you to apply this to your lives. Well, I'm going through this new way of reading scripture. And instead of using the word apply, the author uses the word obligations. And I love it because the concept is, what am I obligated to do now that I know this text exists? what does this text demand of my life? What does it obligate me to do in response to what God is saying? For me, I'm just sharing it with you because maybe it impacts you too. For me, that changed it all. And it's not just about me making sure it fits onto my life like some form of super suit or skin. Like this is like Making sure that everything about my life is changing in response to what I read in the Word. And so maybe a better question for you is not what's my application from this, but what does this text obligate that I do? What's my obligation now that I know that along with my faith comes a purpose? And I would say that obligation is don't lose sight of your faith-given purpose. I Don't lose sight of your faith-given purpose. And let that purpose be the thing that directs your decisions. Like your decisions on your career. Let your purpose be the thing that helps you make those decisions. Your decisions on who to date. Let your purpose be the thing that directs that decision. On where to spend your time. On where to spend your money. And what you're going to do with the rest of your life. Don't let your desires be the driving factor. Let your purpose be the driving factor. Your faith has given it to you. Don't lose sight. Don't be clouded by desire, either godly or worldly. Last point for tonight our faith brings assurance, purpose, but it also brings unity. Our faith brings unity we see that in verses 27 to 30 at the end of 26 Paul says he wants them to glorify Christ because of his coming to them again right like he's saying I'm going to press on this is going to happen and I want you to glorify Christ by my coming to you and then he says in verse 27 only let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent so he's saying whether I'm there or not Let your life be worthy of the manner of the gospel. I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So Paul says he plans on coming to them. He wants them to glorify Christ because of him. But whether he comes to them or not, his desire is that they would live a life worthy of the gospel. Now I want you to ask yourself a question here if uh i'm not going to do this so rest assured might be assured i'm not going to do this but if i were to call you up have you stand right here and i would ask you the question what does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel how would you answer it if i gave you one minute to give me an answer and you had to form your words together what is it that you would say It takes to live a life worthy of the gospel. Maybe even like Paul. If you're at the end of your life and someone asks, did you live a life worthy of the gospel? What would be the things you would bring up as proof to show that you did? And just to be clear, like I'm not talking about things that made you worthy to receive the gospel. Like I'm talking like that's not a thing. What I'm saying is this talking about living a life that's becoming of someone that has received the gospel, right? Like there's a difference between like if, you, if the Queen of England was coming to your, or the King of England now, right? If the King of England was coming to your bedroom, there's two options. One, he's coming to your bedroom to stay because he heard that your bedroom is worthy of him being there. Or two, he's coming to your bedroom to stay, and so you want to make your bedroom worthy of him being there, right? There's a difference. One is it drew him in. The other is you just want to be fitting for him. And we're talking about that second one, right? Living a life worthy of the gospel means living a life fitting of someone who has received the gospel. All right, so what's the answer? I would reckon that many of you, the minute I ask the question, or as you begin to think about it, started thinking about sin. Maybe your struggle with it your freedom from it your fight against it your sanctification that is like the becoming more righteous and less sinful i think there is a a large portion of us that would sort of direct ourselves there in terms of like yeah being like living worthy of the gospel like i don't want to live a sinful life anymore i want to live a life of repentance and guys that's a great thing it's great to, to desire to like be fitting to the gospel by living a life that is repentant and humble that's not bad at all that's a beautiful thought But that's not actually the thought that Paul has here. That's not what Paul says is is living a life worthy of the gospel. But he gives descriptions of what he's talking about. And what we see is that he's not talking about sin and righteousness, but he's talking about unity. You see it there in verse 27. If they're living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, they are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. And they are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul's like, if I'm there or not, these are the things that I want to see. I want to see you living in a life worthy of the gospel. And here's the things that I would expect to see if that's what you're doing. So to bring it home to you quickly, like, if you're not living a life in unity with the believers around you, if you're not living a life that puts away quarrels and strife and instead takes up the cause of the faith of the gospel, then you're not living a life worthy of the gospel. Let that sink in. Like if you're a person who is prone to drama, prone to quarreling, prone to dissension, prone to isolation. If you're a person that's currently in the midst of that or you have a a habit and pattern of being that type of person. And you're not able to put that aside for the sake of the gospel. You're not able to put that aside for the sake of being with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And for the unity of accomplishing the purpose of what the gospel is here for. Like if you can't do that, you're not living a life worthy of the gospel. And that's what we're being called to. And that's what our faith gives us the ability to do. Is to live a life of unity. Striving with one mind. It's sort of hard to do. Sometimes we don't like people. Sometimes people are hard to be around. Sometimes we get into fights. Sometimes they hurt us, and they actually mean to hurt us. Sometimes they hurt us so badly it's hard to forgive. Paul doesn't mention any of those things in this part of the passage. And in fact, he's going to get even deeper into unity as we go on in the next few chapters. Paul doesn't talk about any exceptions to the rule. He says, this is what I expect of you. This is the standard, that if you're living a life worthy of the gospel, you're living a life in unity with one another. And so I could preach two or three messages on unity, all the nuances of it. We haven't even talked about unity with other people who belong to the body of Christ that don't don't belong to Quorum Deo, right? We haven't even gotten to that whole thing. Maybe someday. But for now, just let the Holy Spirit minister to you speak to you with where you're not in unity with one another and brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're going to change up the way that we end our messages, um, hopefully from now on. We'll see if this works. But here's, here's something that I want to I change. So one of the pieces of feedback that I've gotten is that um, people, they like the way we have things set up. They like, you know, having worship. They like praying for the unreached people groups. They like spending time in the Word together. But one of the downsides of allowing our C groups to be outside of our ministry is that sometimes it's like, all right, hit you with the word, amen, now let's go play laser tag. And we don't have like a minute to like just reflect on what the Lord might want you to remember from this message or his word. So here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to give you a couple minutes to reflect on your own. At the end of this message right now, I'm going to have some music play. No spiritual reason besides just creates a little bit of focus. Okay, just let's you focus for a minute. If you want to journal for a second, if you want to just write down some things, if you want to just look at this right here and be like, where in my life do I not see the assurance? Where in my life do I not see the purpose? Where in my life am I causing disunity? I'm going to give you like 60 seconds to two minutes. Just jot down a couple notes. Maybe take a moment in prayer. And then I'll come back and wrap us up in prayer and we'll get into the communion. So just take that time right now. Reflect. Father, you are so good to give us your word. Lord, it's so good to let us see many themes in one passage, so many things we couldn't cover tonight, so many things we could learn just from what it's like to have the faith that Paul had. I pray, Lord, that you would just continue to bring to mind points of what we've been learning, not only in this message, but just in the book of Philippians that you, Lord, would just bring heart change and life change. That it wouldn't just be messages that stir people up. It wouldn't just be messages that cause people to think. It wouldn't be messages that make people feel challenged, Lord, but it would be messages that build up your kingdom. Lord, if it never does that, may I never preach another word again. Be with us in this time of community in just a few minutes. Keep us safe. Lord, may we not only have fun, but truly let us build relationship. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.